Well, my wife and I, uh, before we had Bennett, we, we purposed to, uh, to take a trip to Europe. And we went over to, uh, we got to see uh, France and Italy, in particular the, the cities of Paris and, and Venice and, and Rome and Florence, and it was an amazing trip. We were so glad that we did it because we knew that when we started to have kids, it would be very difficult to go on a vacation like that. And we had an amazing time. We, we saved up our money, went over there, and just had a great time together. We'll, we'll never forget it. We can't wait to hopefully go back there one day. It was a great experience. But on the way back, um, we, we flew from, on our, on our return home, we flew from Rome all the way into a connecting uh, spot in Atlanta, Georgia, and then on to uh, Los Angeles. Well, as you can imagine, on that flight, you know, it was a long flight. It was about, I don't know, probably about a 10-hour, 12-hour flight or so from Rome to Atlanta, Georgia. And I was, uh, you know, I was hurting on that flight. You know, I didn't get much sleep. I was uh, very, very groggy. And just, you know, when you, you get off a plane like that, 10 or 12 hours, and you just don't look all that good, right? Is that fair to say? Now, my wife, on the other hand, uh, she always looks good. Um, she, you know, for whatever reason, she can go on a 10 or 12 hour flight and pop out of the plane looking like, you know, that gal or something like that. And so, and so we get off the plane and we begin to walk through uh, the terminal. And of course, we're passing by security guards that are at those points where you, you know, you can't turn around and go back in once you cross this, this part in the airport. And I'm walking out, you know, bags under my eyes, my hair's a mess, I'm just kind of, you know, groggy walking off the plane, and my wife's just like, ah, you know. And we pass by a, um, we pass by a security guy, and we're holding hands, walking by the security guy. security guy looks at us and he says, oh, how nice, a father-daughter vacation. True story. My wife said, He's not my dad. He's my husband. The guy said, Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) True story. Finally, my wife stopped and convinced the man that this was her husband, not her dad, no less. Now, you can imagine uh, what I wanted to do to this man, but I, I restrained myself. You see, I had been misidentified. I had been misidentified like you would not believe. And it hurt my feelings. I looked to him like an old, old man who was ca- taking his daughter home from a trip to Europe. Misidentified. I couldn't believe it. And I I was hurt emotionally. And I I wondered, how could he possibly not know that who I was and that I was her husband, not her father? My goodness. You know why I bring up this story? Because in our story today, Jesus Christ, twice, is going to be grossly misidentified. Grossly misidentified. His own family is going to misidentify Him. And a little bit later on, the scribes from Jerusalem are going to misidentify Jesus. Only this misidentification uh, is not humorous. This misidentification is not something that um, Jesus is going to take lightly. Turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to take a look at this text. The title of my message is this. Rightly identifying Jesus is imperative. Rightly identifying Jesus is imperative. Take a look at Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 19. We're going to start in 19b, the second half of that verse. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 19b, says this, And they went into a house. That is Jesus and His disciples. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when His own people heard about this, His own people being His family, they went out to lay hold of Him. For they said, He's out of His mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, 
He has Beelzebub, or Beelzebul. And by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. So he called to himself, he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because they said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But Jesus answered them, and saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Now some of you may be wondering why we're taking such a large portion of Scripture today. I want to assure you there's good reason for it. You see, the Scripture begins and ends with discussion of Jesus and His family, doesn't it? It begins and ends with discussion of Jesus' own people at the start up in verse 19, 20, and 21. And on down from verses 31 to 35, you're going to notice that family comes back into the picture. And they're misidentifying who Jesus is. And in the middle, from verses 22 to 30, we have another group of people who are misidentifying who Jesus is. You see, the gospel, Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, is specifically arranging this story in such a way that we would lump it together as a story about the identity of Jesus Christ. And so we need to read it in totality to understand what Mark is saying. Take a look again at verse 19 to 21. It says, And they went into a house. Now, this is presumably Simon Peter's uh, house. Then the multitudes came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. There's such a large crowd around Jesus. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark for some time now. We're, it's quite evident that Jesus is a very, very, very popular figure. There's many, many people crowding around this house. Entering the house, no less. So much so, that they're not even able to get around the table for a bite to eat. It says, but when His own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of Him. For they said, He is out of His mind. That is to say, when Jesus' own family and countrymen from Nazareth came, and they saw the astounding popularity of Jesus, and they saw the new authoritative teaching that Jesus had brought with Him, and they saw the way in which Jesus was defying the religious authorities of that day, it says they came to lay hold of Jesus. That phrase, to lay hold of, is actually one word in Greek. It's a strong word. It means to arrest. Jesus' family entered the scene claiming Jesus was crazy and looking to inevitably arrest Him or physically remove Him from the situation. Now, why would they do this? Why would they do this? You know, we really don't know for sure. We can only speculate. Perhaps they really did believe Jesus was insane, but I don't think that's likely. I think what's more likely is that Jesus' family, and we're talking about, at the very least, Mary and his brothers, who are mentioned later on in the story. And we don't know how many of them held this view, but at least some of them did. Which, um, which is interesting because the Catholic Church from the 3rd century onward attempted to alter this text, as a matter of fact. There's documented manuscripts which show that they tried to eliminate the fact that Jesus' family was making this accusation. When in reality, the manuscript tradition by and large says it was them making this accusation. 
Why would they do this? Why would Mary and Jesus' brothers and family and countrymen make this kind of a statement? Honor and shame. Honor and shame. In the ancient Near East, both in the first century and today, honor and shame are the highest Honor is the highest virtue in that society. Jesus was shaming the name of His family in their eyes by going against the grain of traditional Jewish teaching and making a spectacle of the so-called religious authorities. Jesus' family was coming to lay hold of Jesus because not so much that they believed Him to be crazy, per se, but that they were so concerned that what Jesus was doing would shame them, would shame their name. Imagine how Jesus must have felt when His family arrived on the scene making these claims. What an incredible accusation it was. Have you ever been accused of something that was not true? It's a helpless feeling, isn't it? It's not something that we really, really enjoy being accused of something that is not true of us. How much worse if your own family is doing it? How much worse if your mother and brothers are making an accusation against you that is not true? I bring this out simply to note the fact that Jesus is able to sympathize with you who have family troubles. Jesus is able to sympathize with those of us who are misidentified from time to time. When people speak ill of us or or say, I accusations or allegations against us that are not true. This is exactly what Jesus is experiencing. He can empathize. He can sympathize with those kinds of feelings. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. Jesus Christ. Now, while Jesus' family was seeking to preserve their family name, the honor of their family name, there was another group from Jerusalem who came with the express purpose of shaming Jesus. They came with the express purpose of shaming Jesus. And this group was called the scribes. Now, we've learned about the scribes in the past. Uh, One of my messages that references the scribes uh, in chapter 1, I believe, of Mark, possibly the early part of chapter 2, we found out that the scribes are people who are specific religious leaders in the Jewish community who are, or who are particularly interested in interpreting the Mosaic Law. That is to say, they take the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy in particular, and they open up that Old Testament, and they are the ones in the community who are expected to know all the answers there is to know about interpreting the law. And the scribes are coming to Jesus. Only this group of scribes are different from those whom Jesus has encountered earlier. You see, this mention of the scribes are not from Galilee. They're not from Capernaum. They're not from the land in which Jesus is from. These scribes are from Jerusalem. Take a look at verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, or Beelzebul. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. These scribes carry with them more authority than the scribes in Capernaum. These scribes are from Jerusalem, from the temple. And when they come into town, they're readily recognizable by the people in the community. And they walk into town, having known a little bit about Jesus, but perhaps not much. And upon being confronted with the person of Jesus Christ... Upon seeing the crowds and the popularity with which Jesus is attracted, upon hearing a little bit of His authoritative teaching, these scribes turn to the crowd and say this, He has Beelzebul. It's by the ruler of the demons that this man casts out demons. Now, some of you in your Bibles may read Beelzebub with a B at the end, as does the New King James. However, I've translated it Beelzebul behind me for our purposes today. 
as all the available Greek manuscripts render it so. Not just some, all. It was perhaps a, a mistake of the King James translation that it was Beelzebub. In any event, Beelzebul, with an L at the end, not a B, I want to examine the origin and the meaning of this term. Take a look behind me at some of these uh, elements about this name. Second Kings 1 references Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, meaning god of flies, back in Second Kings chapter 1. This quote is interesting from uh, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. I found it helpful. Notice this. It is a well-known phenomenon in the history of religions that the gods of one nation become the devils of its neighbors and its enemies. Thus, point three, it is likely that the Jews adopted the name of the god of Ekron to represent Satan. To represent Satan. Fourth and finally, it is likely that the Jews in ridicule changed Beelzebub, the Ekronite god of flies, into Beelzebul, which means god of dung. That should be a little humorous to you, but that's what the Jews meant by it. They meant it to be ridicule. They meant it to be mockery. They meant it to make fun of the god of the Ekronites. And thus we have the term Beelzebul. The reason I note, uh, excuse me, returning to verse 22. Take a look at verse 22. Now, there are two slightly different things that they're saying about Jesus. And the distinction is important. There are two slightly different things they're saying about Jesus. The first is this. They're saying He has Beelzebul. That is to say, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul or Satan. Secondly, they're saying this. That it is by the ruler of the demons that Jesus is casting out demons. That is to say, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan within Him. Those are two slightly different accusations. Altogether the same, but nevertheless, we're going to keep them separate for good reason today. And the reason we're going to keep them separate is this. Jesus deals with these accusations in reverse order. Jesus is going to respond. He's going to talk and argue against these accusations in reverse order. In other words, he's going to begin by attacking the idea that Satan within him is giving him power to cast out demons. And his response is going to be in verses 23 to 26. Then, in verse 27, he's going to respond to the first charge that he himself is possessed by Beelzebul or Satan. Now, it's relatively easy to understand these allegations being made by the scribes, but friends, don't miss the gravity of these accusations. And we're looking at them kind of objectively. We're looking at them up on a screen and we're saying, okay, that's what they're saying about Jesus. Don't miss the gravity. They're saying that Jesus is demon-possessed. They're saying that He's possessed by the spirit of Satan Himself. They're saying that the exorcisms that Jesus is performing, every time He goes up to a person and commands the demon in that person to leave that person, they're saying that Jesus is doing that by the power of Satan within Him. Don't miss the gravity of those accusations. Jesus is not going to take those accusations lightly. It is perhaps one of the most grievous accusations you can make against Jesus Christ, against the Holy Spirit within Him. Take a look at verses 23 to 26. In verses 23 to 26, you're going to notice in yellow behind me, this is Jesus' answer to the second accusation in green. Okay, In green, we see the phrase, by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Jesus is now responding to this accusation. Take a look at verse 23 to 26. So he called them to himself. And he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. Verse 23 serves as Jesus' introductory defense. Think of Jesus like a lawyer here right now. He's making an opening remark, if you will. 
to the court. And in this opening remark, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Or how can Satan cast out what is Satan's? Jesus clearly expects no answer to this question. The answer Jesus is looking for, excuse me, he's he's expecting a negative answer to this question. The answer he's looking for is, he can't. Satan cannot cast out Satan. Verses 24 to 25 serve as the evidence for this opening remark. Verses 24 to 25 serve as the evidence or the body of support for Jesus' opening remark. And he says this, he offers two very brief parables. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Whether it's a nation or a family, whether it's a nation or a family, whenever that nation or family is divided against itself, that nation or family is incapable of standing or holding together. Instead, that nation or that family that is divided amongst themselves will begin to deteriorate or crumble. They will not be able to stand. Eventually, they will cease to be a nation or a family altogether for the sake of their disunity amongst themselves. That is Jesus' evidence. And here is His conclusion. Take a look at verse 26. Verse 26, He says this. It says, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. Just like nations cannot stand if they're divided against themselves. Just like families, households cannot stand if they're divided against themselves, but will crumble and deteriorate every single time there is disunity. So also Satan will crumble and deteriorate if he rises up against himself. If he divides himself. The words risen up against Himself are clearly in reference to the exorcisms that Jesus has been performing. The people are saying that that Jesus is making those demons leave the people because Satan's within Him. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. If Satan rises up against Himself, that is to say, if Satan is confronted with someone who is demon-possessed and casts out that demon from the one who is possessed, then He has risen up against Himself. In effect, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the power of Satan, then Satan is casting out those of His own dominion. And if Satan is casting out those of His own dominion, then Satan's dominion cannot stand, but has an end. Now, none of the Jews of Jesus' day, not least the scribes, were willing to concede that Satan and his forces were self-destructing. Thus, Jesus' argument was exceedingly difficult for them to dispute. Exceedingly difficult to dispute. Clearly, Satan is not interested in the business of healing. Let me say that again. Clearly, Satan is not interested in the business of healing. Satan is not interested in the business of taking affliction away from a man or a woman. Satan is not in the business of casting out demons from his captives. In fact, he's in the absolute opposite business. He's in the business of affliction. He's in the business of possession. He's in the business of capturing people by the power of darkness and blinding them from the truth, from the light, from the life. Jesus' argument is very, very difficult to overcome. He is not casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he makes his case against it. Now go on to verse 27. Verse 27, in yellow, we're going to see Jesus' response to the accusation in green. Now, immediately, this won't be readily identifiable how he's responding to this, but hang tight. We're going to see how Jesus is responding to this accusation that he is possessed by Satan. Not simply that his power is of Satan, but that he himself is possessed by Satan. 
Take a look at verse 27. It says this. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Now this brief parable is perhaps an illusion if if those of you who like to go back and study where it might have come from. Perhaps an allusion to the end of Isaiah chapter 49. Might, might want to make a note of that. The end of Isaiah chapter 49 has reference to this kind of language which Jesus may be referencing. But let's break down verse 27 to see its significance. What's happening in this verse, friends? A plunderer, a plunderer is binding up a strong man. He's entering his house. He's tying up a strong man. And he is stealing goods out of his house. Let's start with the concept of binding, where it speaks of the binding of the strong man. Now, to be bound means to lose power or control. To be bound means that you don't have the power or control to be released of what is binding you. Now, remember, this whole episode in the life of Jesus centers around His ability to exercise demons. In those moments of exorcism, what can we say about what is happening to Satan? Could it be said that he is losing power? Could it be said that he is losing control? Could it be said that when Jesus casts out a demon, that Satan is being bound? I think that's a fair assessment. I think that's a fair assessment of what it might mean for the strong man to be bound. Therefore, we might conclude that Satan in this story, in this parable, is like a strong man. Excuse me. (coughs) I got a frog in my throat. (coughs) Excuse me. All right. In the parable, it could be said that Satan is like a strong man who is being bound. Okay? Moving on. Satan's house. Let's go to the strong man's house. Satan's house might be understood as the world that Satan holds captive. How about Satan's goods? Satan's goods are perhaps best understood as those people, those persons, who are under Satan's control. Who are held captive in the strong man's house. Now let's re-examine the parable anew. I've written a abbreviated version, if you will, of what Jesus is trying to say. Take a look. No one can enter Satan's dominion and take people away from Satan unless he first binds Satan and then he will take people from Satan's dominion. This, I submit to you, is the purpose of Jesus' statement. Jesus is casting out demons. Because of this, it can be said that Satan is being bound. If only momentarily. But nevertheless, Satan is being bound or is losing power, losing control. And if Satan is losing power and control with each and every exorcism that Jesus performs, then it can be said that Jesus is stronger than Satan. Let me say that again. If Satan is losing power and control with each and every time Jesus takes a demon away from a person, then it can be said that Jesus is more powerful or stronger than Satan. Jesus is the one who is binding Satan and plundering Satan's captives. This is a resounding answer to the first allegation back in verse 22. Jesus is not possessed by Satan. Jesus is not possessed by Satan. Far from it. In in fact, Jesus, by His very ability to cast out demons, demonstrates that He Himself is more powerful than Satan. Far from being the one who is controlled by Satan, Jesus is actually the one who controls Satan. Jesus is the one who is binding Him, plundering Satan's captives. Now this encounter with the scribes is not finished. Jesus has finished responding to their accusations, but He's going to go on to issue a warning. A warning that you and I are very familiar with. One that uh, we've read many times. Some of you may have questions about. We're going to approach this humbly. 
Because as I said in my, uh, my prayer, we're approaching a text that down through the centuries has been uh, very widely interpreted. And so as we interpret today, I want to submit to you that I approach this text very humbly. I do not suppose that I cannot learn more about this text. Um, I, I realize that there's perhaps much more to be learned. Um, but nevertheless, I'd like to give you what I believe is the interpretation of, this, of these three verses because I believe, I believe it to be accurate, and I, I think it's a helpful understanding of what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Take a look at Jesus' warning, verse 28. He says this, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because they said he has an evil, an unclean spirit. What is this sin? Keep in mind, Jesus is responding to the allegations, the allegations of the scribes against him. They're saying he has Beelzebul. They're saying he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Therefore, what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? This is the question we're going to be answering. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Based on verses 28 and 29, and based on the context of what Jesus has just come out of, the situation, the allegations that he's just received, it seems that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit encompasses this. One, someone must have knowledge of a miracle of God. And quite possibly... For those who believe that this is a sin that can only be committed in the first century, which some do, I I tend to lean toward, but I'm not sure. For some, they say you must have knowledge of a particular miracle of Jesus. Not that you need to witness it, personally, because it's not necessarily so that the scribes in Jerusalem witnessed Jesus' exorcisms. It says that they came and approached Him and started speaking about Him. It does not suggest that they saw these miracles or these exorcisms. But nevertheless, they had knowledge of them. Secondly, one who commits blasphemy against the Holy Spirit rejects the divine origin of that miracle and instead embraces a satanic origin. Embraces, not embrace. Instead embraces a satanic origin. In other words, they know of a miracle of God or of Jesus in particular. And they look upon that miracle or they they, they consider that miracle and they say that rather than a divine origin... Rather than saying this is from the Spirit of God, they say that this is satanic. This work of God is satanic. It's not a work of God, it's a work of Satan. Third and finally, a person who commits blasphemy against the Holy Spirit publicly declare, they need to publicly declare their false view to others. Perhaps once, or perhaps repeatedly, it is unclear based on Jesus' statement. Now why this third option? Well, keep in mind, it is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is to say, it is something that is uttered. It is something that is spoken. It is something that is said. It is not merely one and two. That is not sufficient. It needs to be something that is then declared out to those who would listen to you. It requires public speaking or verbalization of your false belief. This blasphemy may be a one-time occurrence or it might be repeated. We're not sure. Although I will point out that in verse 30, when it says they said he has an unclean spirit, that word said there is in the imperfect tense in Greek, which means they kept on saying it. They kept on saying it. They kept on saying it. In other words, they were going around the crowd and they were saying, this man's possessed. This Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. And they kept on making these accusations again and again and again. Now let's move on to the phrase, the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin. Interestingly enough, while that phrase has become the common way of speaking about this passage of Scripture, this phrase does not occur in this passage of Scripture, does it? Nor does it occur anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, there are some who question the legitimacy of this title. Let me say again, there are some who question the legitimacy of that title to describe this portion of Scripture. Uh, One such person, among many, 
uh, certainly not alone, is Dr. Bob Wilkin, who spoke here two weeks ago. Uh, Bob Wilkin has a very, very um, helpful quotation that I'd like to read, questioning the legitimacy of this title. Take a look at what he has to say. He says, we need to challenge the designation, the unpardonable sin. Jesus didn't say that he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. That would make the sin unpardonable. Rather, he said that he never has forgiveness. That would be better described as the unpardoned sin. The death of Christ covers all sins without exception. The distinction may seem unimportant. It isn't. This is very, very well put. And I recognize that this may be difficult for some of you to comprehend. But there is a tremendous distinction between saying something cannot be forgiven and something will not ever be forgiven. Let me say that again. There is a distinction between saying something cannot be forgiven and someone never has forgiveness. What's the point? Wilkin is suggesting that the reason this sin leads to eternal condemnation is not because it cannot be forgiven. For Jesus' blood covers all sin. Jesus' blood is sufficient. Jesus' blood is infinitely able to cover the sin of the world. The reason this sin leads to eternal condemnation is not because it cannot be forgiven. The reason this sin leads to eternal condemnation is because the one who commits it will never seek to be forgiven and thus never has forgiveness. Let me say that last part again. The reason this sin leads to eternal condemnation is because the one who commits it will never seek forgiveness and thus never has forgiveness. Turn back to verse 28 behind me. You'll see the verse again. Notice, look at it again, perhaps for the first time. Jesus is speaking about the potentiality for forgiveness. I say the word potentiality for good reason. Because notice what He says in verse 28. He says, All sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. Do you suppose that Jesus is saying that everyone's sins are going to be forgiven by this statement? No. He's saying that Potentially speaking, whatever you sin, whatever you do, whatever blasphemy you may utter, there is the potential for you to be forgiven of that sin. Jesus is not declaring that all people are forgiven of their sin. He's declaring that there is the potential for the person to be, to, to be forgiven for any and all sins that they may commit. Potentiality. But then He goes on to say this in verse 29. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. In other words, a person who commits this sin does not have the potential for forgiveness. Why? Why? Because the very nature of this sin is so grievous. It is so severe. This sin comes from such a hardened and perverse heart. A heart that is utterly calloused to the very miracle of God. And instead, looking upon that miracle and saying that is Satan's miracle and not God's miracle. The person who makes that kind of a statement is not a person who will ever seek the forgiveness of God. And thus, they never have forgiveness. We might liken such a person to Jesus' teaching on casting pearls before swine. As ignorant swine have no use for precious pearls, so also the person who says that a miracle of God is a miracle of Satan has no use for forgiveness. Their heart is too hard. Their sin is too grievous. They're too calloused to ever have the potential to seek forgiveness again. To seek forgiveness for the first time. That is the distinction that so many throughout the history of uh, Christendom um, that, that many have not seen, I believe, about this passage. I know some would suggest that, uh, that well, this is an unpardonable sin. That is to say, Jesus' blood can't cover this sin. 
I don't buy that. 1 John 1.29 tells me that the Lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells me that no sin is imputed to mankind. That God in Christ reconciled the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. He didn't impute sins to them when Jesus died on the cross. 1 John 2.2 tells me that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for my sins. He removes the wrath of God from me because of my sins. And not for mine only, but the sins of the whole world. To suggest that there is a sin out there that Jesus' blood cannot cover is not theologically correct. Let me say that again. To suggest that there is a sin in the world today that Jesus' blood cannot cover is not theologically correct. And therefore, this sin is not unpardonable. It is simply unpardoned. This person is one who will not seek forgiveness when they make that step of calling the work of God the work of Satan. Can a Christian commit this sin? I know it's a question many of you ask in a word, no. No, a Christian cannot commit this sin. Take a look at what Jesus says in John 5.24. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. That is to say, shall not come into any kind of condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Notice clearly, verse 29 of Mark 3 says, the person who commits this sin will be subject to eternal condemnation. John 5.24 tells me that no one who believes in Christ will be subject to eternal condemnation. Therefore, it can be said, it can be concluded, very simply, that no Christian can commit the sin of Mark 3.29. Now we come full circle. Let's finish out verses 31-35. to And notice, notice how it still brings conclusion to the story that we've been reading today. Jesus, Mark continues in verse 31. He says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to Jesus, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Make no mistake. As Jesus' own family, as His own family have sought to disassociate from Him, so also Jesus, if only for a moment, disassociates from His family. If only for a moment. He rhetorically asks, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looks around at those with him. And he says, here they are. Here's my family. Why? Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. This is a, um, also a very misinterpreted statement. Um, we come across statements like verse 35 and we say, well, what, what does he mean there? Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. What does that phrase mean? I was very impressed with what one commentator had to say about this. I've been reading his commentary through Mark. This man has an excellent take on the Gospel of Mark. His name is R.T. France. And his quote, I'm going to give it to you in two parts. Take a look at the first part. It says this. In, in respect to verse 35, he says, This is a very broad expression. It would express well the aim of most religious people, including especially the Pharisees, the scribes, and Jesus' family. In other words, Francis is saying, he's saying, look, whoever does the will of God is my family. Okay, that, that statement that Jesus is making. Would that not describe the Pharisees? I mean, are they not people seeking to do the will of God? Would that not describe the scribes? People who daily are looking at the Torah, seeking to do the will of God? Would that not describe Jesus' own family? 
very pious and religious Jews, people who were trying to not incur the, the shame of the family because Jesus was teaching against the grain of traditional Judaism. All these people behind me are seeking to do the will of God day by day. I submit to you, as does Archie France. He says we've got to look for another reason here. We've got to look for another answer. What does Jesus mean by this phrase? Surely He does not simply mean follow the moral law of God. For that could perhaps be said of those three groups behind me. But R.T. France continues and he says this, In the context of the story so far in Mark, it must surely relate to Jesus' proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God. It is that kingdom call which which both scribes and family have in their different ways rejected and in so doing have put themselves outside the will of God. Well said. Well said. It is so easy to read statements like verse 35 and conclude that it means that Jesus is looking for obedience from the Pharisees, from the scribes, from His family. Obedience to God's moral law as if they're not already attempting to do that. Francis is making the point that, hey, the Pharisees are obedient people. The scribes are obedient people. Jesus' family are obedient people. They're attempting to follow the Torah day by day. Surely Jesus is thinking in different terms when He says, whoever does the will of God is my family. I think it's best expressed in the words of Jesus Himself. Take a look at John 6.40. This is what Jesus says about the will of the Father. He says, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise, up, raise Him up at the last day. What a statement. Jesus Himself says, this is the will of the Father. And this, John 6.40, is precisely the will of God that the Pharisees and the scribes, and at this point in time, it could be said that some of Jesus' own family were not embracing. They were not responding to Jesus' call to believe in the Gospel that He had brought with Him to believe that He was the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, they might have life, might be entered into God's kingdom, might become a part of God's own family. That is the will of God in Mark 3.35. That is the will of God in John 6.40. That, I submit to you, is the will of God in Matthew 7, where Jesus says to me, so many will say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in Your name. And Jesus turns to them and says, I never knew You. And He goes on to talk about how, but only those who do the will of God will be the ones known to Jesus Christ on the Day of Judgment. Could it be that the will of God in Matthew 7 is to believe in Jesus Christ? I think it could be. I think it could be. I believe it to be the truth. You see, friends, that um, we, we began this message of an illustration about identity. We're ending it on, a, on a topic of identity. Rightly identifying Jesus is imperative. It is imperative. Identifying Jesus correctly is doing the will of God. Recognizing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You do that and you're doing the will of God. And in so doing, you become a part of God's family. I know many uh, who mock the idea that faith is nothing more than rightly believing in the person and promise of Jesus Christ. They say, well, that's just too intellectual. I say that to believe in, to rightly identify Jesus, to believe that Jesus is the only way to life with God is not a small thing. The person who believes that Jesus is the only way to God is saying quite a few things. They're saying, one, there is only one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. They're saying, two, Christianity is the only true religion, and all other religions are false. They're saying, three, the only God there is is the triune God. The God of the Bible. Rightly identifying Jesus, friends, is no small matter. It's no small matter. It's the very essence of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Identify Jesus in this life 
And He will recognize you in the next. Let's take a look at application as we conclude. What are some ways in which we can understand how to apply this message here today? First, don't forget this. Jesus' own family wished to distance themselves from Him. Jesus can sympathize with those of us who encounter family troubles. I reference Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, which demonstrate that Jesus is able to sympathize. He was tempted in all manners. He was tested in all ways. His own family said, you're nuts at one point in his life. Later on, they changed their tune. His, brother, his half-brother James went on to write the epistle of James. So this was not something they maintained, but nevertheless, Jesus understood what it meant to be misunderstood by your own family. Two, commit to memory the definition of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This sin is unpardoned because the one committing it will not seek forgiveness. It is not unpardonable since Jesus' blood covers all sin. Be assured that no Christian can commit this sin. Third and finally, Doing the will of God in Mark 3.35 is rightly identifying Jesus. Believe in Jesus and you will become a part of God's family forever. Rightly identifying Jesus is not a small matter, friends. That is precisely what the people surrounding Jesus were doing. And that is why He pointed at them and said, These are my mother and my brothers and my sisters because they know who I am. Rightly identify Jesus and He will identify you in the kingdom to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time of study. Oh, Father, we, um, we, we approach this very humbly, Lord. We recognize that there is a great diversity of opinion on some of the Scriptures that we have read today. We can only ask, Lord, that Your Spirit would guide us as we continue to search Your Word and see if these things are so. Uh, Father, I recognize that I am fallible that I have much more to learn about even this passage. I pray that those who uh, may be of a different persuasion, that we might be able to come together in a spirit of uh, community, of edification, of uh, helping one another to understand Your Word better. Father, we thank You that Your Son is able to sympathize with us when our family when our friends don't say good things about us, when they accuse us. I thank You, Lord, that Your Son sympathizes with us. I thank You, Lord, that, that when we rightly identify Your Son, You make us a part of Your family. What a blessing. I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here today who has never believed in Your Son, Jesus Christ, that they would identify Him as their Savior today. It is no small matter. Your eternal destiny is at stake. What, they, what we say about Your Son, Father, is of infinite importance. Thank You, Father, for Jesus Christ, for His death on the cross, covering all the sin of the world. We thank You that by believing in Him, we can have forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.